The Multiverse Podcast presents The Crushing Fist, Chapter 6. Written by Matt Demersky, produced by Eunice Randall, and narrated by Raphael Marmel. So the rich girl says to her friend, Nobody will know who broke it. And she means it. I shook my head. I'm the frickin' bodyguard. I'm standing right there. Her back against gray brick, her legs stretched forward, her arm hanging idly through the bars. Christina gave a small but genuine laugh. Lounging on the floor and leaning against the bars opposite her, I threw up one hand. That's what I kept asking myself. But they just get so used to you being around and quiet they forget you're even there. For a moment, the humored look she gave me reminded me of a woman I'd known many lifetimes ago. Her cheek tilted up slightly, as if she was about to speak from the heart for the first time since I'd found her again. But a sudden tremor broke both our good mood and our boredom. Over in his cell, Vasiliev stepped up to his bars. I'm all for the plan, but it feels like we're running out of time. I thought you said he was going to take the stand this week. He looked across the hall with enmity. The brigadier general simply remained sitting in his cell. He hadn't spoken all week. There's been a few developments, a new voice added. I looked over. At first I just saw the suit, and then the lanky frame beneath. As I stood, I found a familiar but grim face approaching. He stopped outside my cell. Noah? I asked, wondering how he'd gotten back into the first world. Not exactly, he replied, but it was easy enough to come here, since the soldiers at the drop already recognized me. While you were busy at the prison, I was setting up a connection out. He held out a stack of bound papers. They're hoping you have some advice or insight. On what? I asked. Almost immediately after you sent the brown shirts back to the refugee headquarters, they were attacked. Christina stood abruptly. I gripped the bars, my thoughts leaping to all of the people I'd met there. By who? The First World Military? No, they had no uniforms, but they were highly trained. They seemed to have an op planned and ready to go as if they'd been watching and studying us for some time. He paused to turn around and give my ex-wife a distant and haunted look. After a moment, he seemed to pull himself away from some dark thought and turned back to me. They disrupted our infrastructure there, took down security and knocked out many of the brown shirts with an unknown gas-based weapon. Then, by witness accounts, they escaped with numerous captives through some sort of black spherical portal. Christina joined me in gripping her bars. Thomas? My thoughts went to that quiet young man as well, and my heart too but my attention seized upon the possible meaning of the black spherical portal. They don't have them. Not exactly, Noah said grimly. But a rather large number of children were hurt or killed in the attack. The gas knocks out brown shirts, but it kills normal people. It looks like they were specifically after him, and he was in a children's area of sorts at the time. Taking the stack of papers I'd been offered, I leafed rapidly through the reports until I found the casualties list. My eyes stopped dead on the name, Caleb. Was it the same young boy that I'd met? There were duplicate names in this list, and many were missing last names. Who would do such a thing? They were hoping you'd know. Fighting an unhappy moisture in my eyes, I shook my head. Why? Why? I'd lost Caleb and his mother in the crowd, because I'd turned away for just a moment just like a single lapse in attention had cost me so much so many years ago. A single tipped fulcrum, a simple moment in time gone one way instead of another. 
had sent the dagger through my heart once more. I had nothing to offer. I had no idea who they were. In the cell adjacent to mine, but out of sight, I heard no move or sound from the Brigadier General. Vasiliev, however, narrowed his eyes. Out there, somewhere, there's an entity we called the Preacher. It had the ability to convert 9% of any group rounded down into fanatical followers. That might be who they are. I have no idea where to find them, though. If that black spherical portal is what I think it is, they could be operating from anywhere. He was right. I'd read it in the book. That's disappointing, our visitor said, subtly angry. I think the people that attacked us, whoever they might be, are extremely dangerous. There's been mentions of someone or something following the brown shirts for quite some time, and a group of us were entranced, interrogated, and left to starve recently by some unknown force that wanted to know where humanity had gone. I think they were one and the same. Evidently, though, none of us had cracked. They still found us. He lowered his gaze. And I have a strong suspicion they're the same people who brainwashed me and made me do terrible things. For years. I stared at his face, noting his despairingly honest expression. He'd had no reason to tell me about such personal pains, except to connect the dots on the evils these unknown men were capable of. And he likely expected no response on his individual suffering. But I still reached out and gripped his forearm. You're okay now, though, right? You're free. He gulped, unable to verbally confirm my reassurance. Then you're your own man now, I told him. I lost everything once, and it was all probably my fault. Christina looked away as I spoke. But, I continued, I'm still here, and I can still do something. It might be small, and it might not help at all in the long run, but I am not nothing, and neither are you. Yeah, he replied quietly. I can try to make up for what I've done. No. Forget making up for anything. Just move forward. The five of us stood in silence for a long moment, with nothing but the howl of the heated winds outside to punctuate our thoughts. I pulled back into my cell and began reading through the papers, trying to completely understand the attack that had been perpetrated upon us. Who else knew about the nightmarish sphere that Higgins, Vasiliev, and the Brigadier General had encountered in the desert years ago? I glanced across the hall at Christina, who was asking detailed questions of our visitor. What had the sword been doing all this time? He still sat in his cell, gazing at the wall. Higgins and Vasiliev had both run for their lives, been found and helped by rebels, and then slowly made their way to the First World with nothing. I'd sort of implicitly assumed the survivors of that operation had all done the same, in one way or another, but the Brigadier General did not seem the type to wander homeless. And Christina... How had she survived? Where had she been all this time? She deftly avoided any talk of her past, something I'd assumed was related to the enormous loss we'd shared, but now I wasn't sure. I'd been pursuing the mysterious trail until my disastrous attempt to fight the sword had left me wounded and broken. I'd come so close to an answer. I could feel it out there, somewhere in the world, waiting for the pieces that I already had to find some new and electric way to fit it together. If the book had just worked when I tried to use it on the Brigadier General, I would already know the truth. But why hadn't it worked? Was there any mention of that book in these papers? I scanned through them quickly, finding nothing. Curiously, I did find mention that one of the attackers had lost his face mask, and he'd had pitch-black eyes. Hearing someone new approach, I quickly hid the stack under my sheets. Whoa, who do we have here? A youthful, cheerily sarcastic voice called out. Con Thompson, 
the man who just can't die. Looking down the hall, I saw another suited man walking up. It was Ethan, bearing a wide grin. What are, uh, to what do we owe the pleasure, I asked, trying to be polite. I was there with you when they sent you off into exile, my old employer said brightly, subtly eyeing a guard at the end of the hall until the latter turned away. Only seems natural I should visit when you do the impossible and come back from the doomed lands. He laid his gaze on each of us one by one, including not exactly Noah, but he said nothing to any of them. Turning to me, he lowered his voice to a whisper. So what's really going on out there? My companions all silently watched me for a cue. Ethan was a Richie, but his secretly smuggled gift had been intended to save my life, and it might have just done that. I didn't think he could be a spy for anyone either, given the sad and apathetic state of, well, everyone. I sighed. Six hundred billion people are out there seeking safety, and more are coming every day. Will they find it? he asked, his sheer suddenly gone. Safety, I mean? I glanced back at the window where the golden white sky, tending hard towards white now, raced by. He caught my unspoken meaning and ran a hand down his face soberly. Well then, I'd guessed the dreadful change in weather wasn't a good sign. He pulled a cigar out from inside his jacket, lit it, and took a deep pull on it. So that's it? None of us said a word. He took our meaning. Wow. Fun stuff, for sure. His gaze seemed lost for a moment, and his fingers trembled around his cigar. He took another long drag before speaking again, his demeanor completely swinging back up. Don't be so tense, friends. Haven't you heard? They've got a book that can force the truth out of anyone, and you're all going to be the first live subjects. I'd wondered about the book's whereabouts after they'd seized it from me, but what would happen when they used the book on the Brigadier General? I told Christina about what happened, but she hadn't said much. It would certainly be a horrible surprise if... Intent on the truth being revealed, we actually got everyone in the courtroom murdered by a rampaging black-eyed monster. Christina finally spoke, replying to Ethan. Good. That's what we're here for. Oh, but that's not the fun part, he shot back. The narrative has changed, because somebody recognized someone and then somebody else went digging in old files. He approached her cell. Seems they threw you off the edge into Tescoy proper, thinking you were nobody important but blowing up a prison facility and drawing all that attention did the obvious. It caught somebody's eyes. They realized that you were all there together five years ago. He let his words hang in the air. Didn't you know? You're all terrorists now. It doesn't matter, she said flatly. The truth will be told. Maybe, but appearance still matters, Ethan said. He turned to shout down the row. We're ready now. We watched, confused, as the guard lurking at the end of the hall came down and began unlocking ourselves. Christina seemed cautious, but stepped out. Vass looked at me, and I just shrugged. The brigadier general stood and followed us silently, bringing up the rear, as we proceeded through the jail's hallways. If they were going to fake a breakout and then kill us, there was nothing we could do about it. The guards didn't seem concerned. Few even bothered looking at us. Ethan led us to a waiting room where he picked up several sets of rather nice formal clothes and, and threw one to each of us. Get out of those prison jumpsuits. On live television, image matters more than anything else. I approached him, confused. Why are you doing all this? Are you a terrorist? he asked. No. Then it's just the right thing to do now, isn't it? He took a pull from his shrinking cigar, regarding it with worried eyes. Time's growing short, 
and I think you people, from what I've heard, have a very slight chance of actually turning things around. Anyway, if we're all about to die, what does anything matter? Save some last-minute heroics. Maybe sneak my way into a good afterlife. I didn't know what to say except thanks. He nodded, and I moved to an unoccupied corner to change, taking care to avoid disturbing my fresh bandages or the crude black cast on my broken leg. They'd taken the old bandages regularly, and we'd all had a good laugh at the first night as the bitey things under my wraps had startled our visiting physician. Reaching for my shirt, I glanced across the room. Christina's back was directly to me, so she didn't see me looking, at the brutal gunshot scar near her right shoulder blade, and at the countless angry, poorly healed lacerations that marred her skin. It looked like someone had thrown her into a blender and left her to die. Which... Someone had. Really. I glared angrily at Vasiliev, who glanced at me, then at her mutilated back. He immediately shot his gaze to the floor and dressed in shameful hurry. Once dressed, Ethan led us to another room, where a team of grim-faced lawyers began telling us how to sit, how to speak, and how to react. I couldn't focus. Was that how she'd survived? Was that how she'd survived? The gunshot wound had not been in an instantly fatal location. Had she passed out during the beatings and stabbings? Or had she purposely remained quiet, despite all the pain so they would think she'd died? Just remember, the lead lawyer told us, looking each of us in the eye and snapping me out of my thoughts. Rich people escape consequences. The more educated and classy you portray yourself, the better chance you'll have, even though the masses know you're not wealthy. The government is using you as scapegoats to focus public ire. So the only way you're getting out of this alive is by winning public opinion over to your side. Make them see you as heroes of the working class. Not wealthy, but smart and classy like someone who is. And they'll clamor for your release. His words fell on the four of us rather bluntly. Did he realize that we were all soldiers? We'd never intersected with the world of fanciness class or dinner parties. At the only social events I'd ever attended, I'd been working security. We were ushered out after the briefing and then escorted through a vast series of hallways. By that point, I'd lost all track of our legal strategy, the ongoing explanations from the lawyers, and where we were going. All I could do was limp along and try to keep up. Too many questions were rolling around in my head. Leaving the hallways behind, we rather abruptly entered a vast cathedral-like space outside of the courtroom proper. Multiple news crews immediately fixated on us. As they shoved their cameras near us, shouted questions, and took pictures, I looked only to Christina. She had her jaw set rather hard, as if she was expecting something very dark ahead. It was strange to move through that wide space, knowing that we were on live global television, but not really seeing or feeling the billions watching. They were just pushy camera crews and a general crowd of important people going about important business. Heavy wooden doors opened, and we were let in. The courtroom itself was a very stately affair lined in cherry woods and gold, and, and I would have thought it part of some mansion or highly official state building if I hadn't walked in from jail directly through the dingy old hallways. I'd expected something more impactful, but nope, that was it. No fanfare, and no specific moment when it all officially began. I just sat down at one of the front tables, along with my alleged partners in crime and our team of lawyers. Ethan and not-exactly-Noah sat in the crowd of seated onlookers behind us. A white-haired older man in long black robes entered and took the central stand. He regarded a thick pad of notes for a few minutes, glancing at us intermittently. The prosecution lawyers entered, 
took up seats at their table and began reviewing notes as well. Sixteen very normal folk queued in and took seats in the long cherry wood jury box to our right. They waited quietly, sometimes coughing or sniffing, still sitting with no instruction or idea what was happening. The three of us exchanged awkward glances. Even Christina's grim foreboding had temporarily faded in favor of confused boredom. The Brigadier General sat motionless at the far end of our line of four, staring forward with military focus. He was a good head or two taller than the lawyer seated beyond him, and somehow managed to dominate the room even while sitting. And still. The uncomfortable waiting ended with an explosion. The bursting open of the main doors as a sharply dressed and visibly haughty blonde man entered the room ahead of a wave of news crews and cameras. I vaguely recognized him. That's the AG himself, one of our lawyers whispered. Daniels. I had heard his name a few times in the last five years. In person, he seemed more like a celebrity than a head lawyer. The cameras were mainly focused on him as he confidently spoke to whoever was listening, which was probably pretty much everyone. He had the book under one arm. It suddenly occurred to me that a device like that might make a lawyer's career go from esteemed to legendary. It was no wonder he seemed so obnoxiously assured of his own victory here. He turned away from the cameras and approached, ignoring us to head straight to the judge and have a short conversation. The judge nodded a few times, frowned, and then shrugged. Daniel swung around and finally looked at us, sizing each of us up in turn. I returned his gaze with a calm and curious neutrality. I knew that I was innocent of whatever the hell was being pinned on us, and that the book under his arm would say as much. But what exactly was his plan for us? Did he have something else on us? Let me start by saying that this would normally be illegal and we recognize that, he stated to the cameras, lifting the book. But the Emergency Authorization Act has temporarily repealed the defendant's right against self-incrimination. This is a time of crisis, and drastic measures must be undertaken. Much has been said in the media lately regarding this book, and I want to confirm for you what hundreds of scientists and physicists and technicians have confirmed and sworn before the eyes of the law. It's true. This book forces the truth out of people. He took a deep sigh, his earlier haughtiness carefully masked behind a feigned heavy heart. And I would still personally advise against its use. After all, what ramifications would this have on our legal system? If we could force the truth out of anyone, what use is a jury? What use is a trial? These are questions beyond the scope of this proceeding. He stepped close to us, and the cameras followed. Furthermore, the Brigadier General, Ward Shaw, the man known as The Sword, has been the primary focus of our witness and testimonies up until this point. I want to remind everyone, however, that the person or persons truly on trial here are the men responsible for the current crisis, the terrorist organization this man has helmed for the last five years. The sword kept his subtly indignant stare and gave no reaction. Or so we thought, Daniels continued, reaching a crescendo. The truth, we suspect, is far worse. The black-eyed army is responsible for some of the worst atrocities mankind has ever seen. He continued talking but I lost track of his words for a moment. The Black-Eyed Army? That would be the men who had attacked the refugee headquarters, hurt and killed all those children, and dragged off so many of the brown shirts, brainwashed and tortured not exactly Noah. And, judging by the way Daniel said it, they'd also committed numerous other acts against the First World. I'd actually heard them mentioned during my years as a bodyguard, but since I didn't watch television, 
I'd just kind of assumed people had been talking about characters from a popular show or something. I turned and looked at the sword. I'd seen his black eyes and impossible strength firsthand, and he'd said, while so possessed, that he was going to take down the shield. I kept my expression calm, but I couldn't help but shiver. It was true. The Brigadier General was guilty, and he had led a terrorist organization, and I was sitting here next to him. But today is special, Daniel said, stepping closer to our table, which is why we've chosen to extend our broadcasts. Not only are people watching throughout the world, we're sending the live stream out into the doomed lands, too, so that those less fortunate than us may take hope that justice is finally being served. A low roar reached us, barely audible through the walls. It hadn't occurred to me that while we were being broadcast globally, a large crowd might have shown up in person. We could hear them outside the Justice Building, responding with enthusiasm to the Attorney General's words. Vasiliev and I exchanged worried glances. Daniel seemed serious. We had no way of knowing if it was true that we were going to be televised beyond the Inner Shield, but there didn't seem to be reason for him to lie. One look at Christina told me the truth. Nobody else would have noticed the change in her, but I could sense her contained sorrow. Everyone would see what was going to happen here. Thomas, Danny, and all of the other people we'd met would all be watching. Her manner suddenly made sense to me, too. Whatever she had planned, she held the hidden internal tension of a soon-to-be martyr. Suddenly, I was paying attention to every word. If Christina was going to hit trouble, I intended to be there for her. And justice will be served more directly than any of us realized, Daniels continued. Lady Justice has smiled upon us, and we have the leader of the Black-Eyed Army here with us today, in our custody. On this day, we will finally know the evil depths to which these enemies of mankind have sunk. I looked to the sword as he took a deep and expectant breath. Daniels moved near the judge and faced us. I call to the stand, Christina Thompson. My head swung the other way, but my brain did not understand. I watched as my ex-wife grimly stood, approached the stand, and sat down. Several ritual oaths and words were exchanged, and at the question, Do you swear to tell the truth? Christina narrowed her eyes and replied, I won't have a choice. The startled older woman who had done the oaths froze, looked at Daniels, and then hurried off. No need for questions, I suppose. He looked to the camera, barely able to hide his triumphant smirk. I suppose I'll just read from this book aloud. He looked up briefly. We've positioned a camera overhead to confirm and record. A technician with a large headset gave a thumbs up from behind one of the camera crews. Okay, then. He turned to Christina and opened the book. Through many testimonies by a slew of your old comrades, we're familiar with most of what happened out there in the desert five years ago, just before the crushing fist began. Everyone knows the backstory, but now it's time for the story of your turn to terrorism itself. He looked down at the pages. Tell me about the Black-Eyed Army's creation. I looked on with wide eyes. If it was true, would she... No. No terrible black-eyed reaction welled up in her. And the book did not shock Daniels, however much I would have liked to have seen that happen. He began reading out loud. I knew I'd lost the fight the moment a tiny spear of fire shot through my chest. The blast wave hurt in every corner of my body, and I fell to the sand. All personal thoughts had shut off, and I sat atop a gray hill, watching the flow of actions I would need to take to survive the next few minutes, if it was possible at all. Was this how my story was going to end? After so much bitter fighting... 
The first kick nearly made me cry out, but I made no noise. I was surrounded by brutalized men and women who'd been tortured to their limits, and I'd taken a few down myself. They weren't going to be kind. A slice of lightning dug into my lower back, and I pressed my face against the sand, feigning death. They didn't stop. A hail of kicks and soul-rending sharp pains rained down on me, and I stopped being able to hear their angry shouting over the blinding pressure in my awareness. They moved on just as I thought I was surely dead, but that still left me in the sand, dying. I'd tried to keep track of the stabbings. Fifteen? Twenty? I'd lost count. I was on my stomach and lucky for that. The stab wounds were all above my heart, more or less, and sand-free. I had to keep them that way. Through growing dizziness, I began crawling forward. Mutineers are coming for you, I thought. Take care of them. The rebels are also attacking us from the west, the sword's voice echoed in my thoughts. What are your orders? Trembling and trying to pull myself along uneven sand, I didn't have time or capacity for mercy. Just end it. Kill all of them. Understood. And send medical personnel. I've been stabbed. Gunfire echoed in the open night air. I can't. They're all dead. I was still partially lucid, and I thought, for a moment, that I might actually manage to... What? Where was I going? My arms began feeling heavy. I wasn't far from the medical tent. It was then I noticed that crawling forward was getting easier. The sand beneath and behind me was wet, and I started sliding over it a little easier. Oh... Overcome by a dizzy spell, I let my head fall to the sand just outside the medical tent. Part of me kept expecting Khan to swoop in and save me like he always had before, but that wasn't a thing anymore. Why am I crying? Stop crying! Get up! Through blurry eyes, I dragged my way a little further and reached up to grab at specific supplies. Half of my brain was despairing over a life I didn't have anymore, and the other half was screaming tactics to preserve the sliver of existence that I still clutched close. Open the container. Get the refrigerated blood. Check the types. That type. Get out the rest. Connect the cannula to the secivum. Was that right? Stop shaking. Focus. I missed my vein on the first try and winced at the sharp pain that broke through the numbness all along my body. I almost didn't have the strength to attempt it again, but for a moment, I imagined a strong hand lifting my wrist, Khan helping me one last time. On the second try, it went in, and a strange feeling moved through me as my blood pressure changed. With the immediate drain countered, rage began seeping back into me. The preacher was still out there, and I wasn't going to die in the sand like some pathetic worm until I'd seen every single half-alive corpse in its mass torn apart and burned. Laura deserved that much. Mirror. Get the mirror. 
I positioned my crooked arm, holding the mirror so that I could see my shredded clothing. With my other arm, I pulled at it, screaming weakly with the effort until it tore away. It was all red. Everything was red. Red everywhere. Fighting dizziness, I knocked more supplies from above. Rooting through them, I picked a needle and thread out of the sand. If God was out there, only that bastard knew how long this was going to take. There were so many sliced holes in me, in the body I'd always called me, now a mangled doll barely held together. Reaching back with a shaking hand, I slowly went about the work of stitching up my stab wounds, one at a time. At the difficult angle and viewpoint, each stitch was a hard-fought victory. I tried to start with the exposed rib bones I could see near my shoulder blades, but they were too hard to reach. I was forced to start lower. I began to feel dizzy again and noticed the blood bag was almost empty. Stopping to hook up another, the only one left with my blood type, I was interrupted by an equally surprised young man. Are you all right? he asked, startled. Do you need help? I dropped the mirror, pulled the gun that had fallen to my left side with my torn clothes and shot him with my off hand. Pierced through the forehead, he fell. His clothes had not been military. He'd been a rebel. I knew their story and the extent of their unfair and dire situation, but I didn't have the time or opportunity for compassion. Ears ringing from the shot, nearly blacked out by a sudden surge of dizziness, I quickly hooked up the second blood bag and went back to stitching myself up. The rebels are making headway. The sword's voice echoed in my mind again. They've got defectors among them as well. I don't think we can win this. I pressed my thumb against the meat of my left forearm, amplifying the effect of the purple biostone embedded within. Then gather up everyone still loyal. We'll escape through the sphere. Is that safe? he asked. I pressed the biostone harder and I could almost feel his sudden surge of pain. We're about to find out. Wincing, I tried to think of what else needed taking. Get all the gear you can, and send men to the anomalous weapons, biotics, and tools. And send someone to get me at Medical Tent 4 at the first opportunity. I'm not sure I can walk. We can't get to you. The rebels are all around your position. Then go without me. You know what to do. Find out if the stakes are as high as we suspected. Yes, sir. It wouldn't do to be seen near the dead young man. Mostly sewn up, I used the last of my strength to crawl out into the chilly night sand. Desert-clothed men streamed around the tents, and I feebly raised a hand, trying to catch their attention. If they didn't shoot me on sight, then maybe. I didn't reach full consciousness for an unspecified time. When I did, I was in a rebel camp. They'd patched me up and kept me alive, even performed surgery for my perforated intestines. Their doctor said that I'd been extremely lucky. They clearly had no idea who I was. I didn't disabuse them of any notions they might have about my identity, and instead played the wounded and unhappy soldier. Apparently, a great many defectors had escaped into their care. Locked in a storm of confusing emotions, I just listened and stared at my ex-wife, 
who I now realized had been hurt far more than I'd ever known by what had happened to our family. I could see in the five years gone version of her a bitter rage beyond control. And did, did the preacher have our daughter's body? Christina didn't seem to be able to look at me. Thomas, Danny, and everyone else had heard that story. She'd spoken of things she'd done in the past. How would they feel now that they knew who she really was? Daniel stopped. I don't understand. How did this create the Black-Eyed Army? The Brigadier General spoke for the first time that day, stating his response from our table and out of turn. What do you think, fool? That mysterious black sphere out in the desert would simply allow us to travel to other realities without consequences? The judge slammed down his gavel. Please keep silent while testimony's being given. The larger man set his jaw and said nothing further. Daniels gave each of us another strong glance, sizing us up once more. He was clearly hearing things outside the narrative he had expected. He turned back to Christina. Why does the Brigadier General take orders from you? And how did you communicate telepathically? She tensed up, her eyes narrow with fear and honesty. It seemed harder for her to say it out loud than it had been for her to listen to the words taken from her very soul. I was not just figuring out ways to kill or neutralize unknown threats. I was also keeping track of them, cataloging them, using them. The purple biostone? Daniels replied. She nodded. What's it do? I told him I could use it to make him stronger, smarter. She looked over at the sword. I lied. Instead, it gave me absolute control over him. Even through my emotional paralysis, I suddenly understood. When I tried to use the book, something else had already had a hold on the Brigadier General's soul. The book hadn't turned him into a monster. It temporarily freed the monster he'd already been. Beside me, Vasiliev was red-faced and barely keeping his confused anger under control. He'd realized that the Biostone's control meant Ward Shaw, the sword hadn't actually ordered any of those terrible tortures upon him. Christina had. Had she also ordered the attack that had resulted in so many dead children? The sword had been here. In jail. Someone high up in the chain of command, giving you power over an entire brigade, Daniels breathed, piecing it together himself. So you've been commanding the Black-Eyed Army through him all of this time? Just read the book, she shot back, turning away her glare. Daniels looked down again. It seems it skipped ahead. You're awake, a deep male voice said in my head, and therefore alive. It was him, but different. What's your status? I thought aloud. His voice seemed odd. I led the remaining battalions into the sphere. And what happened? Our escape was... Not without cost. His thoughts remained calm as always, despite his words hinting in emotions he should have been feeling. I don't have the words to describe the pain and horror we endured in our crossing. The sphere was not empty. If I was capable of hating you, I probably would. But the biostone in his spine wouldn't allow it. I sat up in my small tent where the rebels had let me recover. What did you find out there? The shield is cracked, as we thought, and the black sphere generating the ink came from outside. After taking several trips through Living Nightmare, we have set up camp on a dead world, 
Our equipment has better readings of the damage from out here. It seems something enormous beyond compare struck the outer shield about six months ago. We'd suspected as much. Enormous beyond compare? I felt him sigh with resignation. The outer shield temporarily lost 96% of its integrity, and several of the inner realities have shifted in place relative to one another. In addition, there are a great number of realities that once neighbored our region that are... gone. Gone? I sat up higher and paid for it with body-wide pain. Gone, he thought again. Destroyed. Inaccessible. Removed. Non-existent. There's a gap out here, 386 realities wide. Irania, Torvald, and Yingtak are all gone. We are right inside of the edge of the vast gulf left behind. It looks like we were struck only a glancing blow, and it still nearly destroyed us. What the hell? What could do that? When I was younger, he replied, I once had contact with an entity seeking a safe place to heal and grow. The first world being so heavily shielded was a natural location for such. How did it get in? It was linked to me from the past. It came to the first world using me as a beacon long before we ever erected the shields. And you think that entity did this? No. That entity sailed on the seas of the multiverse, as big as several realities itself when fully grown. Its entire race was wiped out by a single blind and mad creature that flailed about in the dark. I'd heard something about his now-quite-old report, the incident that had sparked him joining the military. He'd had no proof of the larger entity to describe, so it hadn't been widely publicized, but they had certainly used the complex neural bioresources found at the site to vastly advance the state of modern medicine, the fields of limb and organ regeneration in particular. So you think this gigantic creature has been attacking us? No, he replied, quite grim. I saw it firsthand through other eyes. I think a single random flailing of a single one of its limbs caused all of this destruction. What? I thought, rather horrified. Just how goddamn big is it? As big as you can imagine, and then a thousand times bigger than that. Despite the pain, I clambered up. I had to radio someone, tell someone, and I had more questions. Why isn't the shield healing? Unknown. We'll need more time to figure that out. There are some residual forces built up on the outside, and they're growing for some reason. What should we do? This is way beyond the engineers back home. We need to find the entities that helped us build it. Shall we come retrieve you? We can use the sphere to go almost anywhere, now that the shadows and pain inhabit every cell in our bodies. I cringed. No, I'm going to do some searching on my own. I think I'll avoid becoming filled with shadows, thank you. So be it, he replied calmly. Daniel stopped again, confused, 
You didn't cause the crushing fist. Of course not, Christina said bitterly. You think we brought on a crisis of this magnitude by messing with some black sphere in the desert? No matter, the AG shot back. You're not on trial for that. You're on trial for what the Black-Eyed Army has done in the meantime, causing continual damage to the shield, attacking First World military bases and sealing exotic weapons and biotics, and bringing about the current crisis out there. Out there? she asked, laughing in angry disbelief. Have you been outside? This world is in trouble. We're perfectly safe behind the Golden Shield, Daniel said with a smirk, mugging for the cameras. Everyone knows that. She stood, ignoring the judge's banging gavel. Have you felt the heat? The searing winds, she shouted. The first world isn't safe. He raised both arms. Now, now, scientists are conflicted on whether or not the world is warming, let alone whether it's the fault of the crushing fist. We've been assured nothing can get to us. The inner shield was never damaged like the outer one. I've had some time to think about it. She shouted louder, standing high on the witness stand's wooden edge and grabbing the attention of the camera crews. And I know exactly what's about to happen here. Bayless moved to intervene, our cue to leap up and get rough. Despite our lawyer's protests, Vasiliev, the sword, and I leapt up and began grappling with them. With the whole world watching and more, let me tell you, the pressure outside is crushing whole realities. Despite the outer shield still being maintained by a skeleton crew of lonely guardians who have been abandoned by the heartless First World military, all that pressure is translating down right to us, here. That pressure you feel? The camera crew surrounded her, looking up with reverence and awe. That heat you feel is the strain of ancient machines trying to keep our reality from imploding. They're going to fail, and they're going to fail hard. Do you know what a black hole is? It's when space is pulled down in an infinite degree and nothing can escape. Everything is pulled in and destroyed. The courtroom went silent. All motions stopped as humanity waited for her zealous words. Well, that's not going to happen here, she yelled, her eyes afire. Quite the opposite. When that build-up force finally penetrates the golden shield through a small hole, the tiniest of reaches, it's not going to pull space down. It's going to push it up and in. It's going to land through with tremendous force, and a white hole is going to erupt right in our front yard. She looked around as if gazing through the walls. And probably near here, considering the number of military bases that have drilled through the shield for so long. A white hole? A reporter asked quietly, eyes trembling. She held up her microphone. Christina glared down. Where a black hole pulls everything in, a white hole pushes everything away. A black hole singularity center cannot be escaped. A white hole center can't ever be reached, and space will stretch right under us, pushing everything away with forces even light can't overcome. Once it forms, it's too late. Game over. The courtroom remained silent. Daniels looked at each of us, his expression haunted. After a moment, he opened the book. Tell me what she was really thinking just now. His eyes scanned the page. The camera crews turned and focused on him. Oh my god, he breathed. She's not lying. As if punctuating his words, the ground gave a little tremble. A minor earthquake, brought on by the very crisis that scientists seemed conflicted over. He walked over absently, handed us the book, and paused a few more steps down the path between the onlookers behind us. They waited, stunned, for his words. He looked at everyone in the room in a sweeping arc, an obvious question in his eyes. After a full circle, he let it free. Well, who fucking cares about this, then? Everyone in the courtroom looked in askance at the people around them. 
Daniels ran from the door, tearing off his tie as he went. Camera crews raced after him. A great commotion erupted in the room, and the crashing wave of confused and angry shouting rolled in from the crowds gathered outside of the Justice Building. The judge stood and hurried out the back door. The bailiffs, confused, went after him. The watchers behind us began getting up and talking loudly over one another. Ethan's hand gripped my shoulder. A fine show, friend. I suggest we all leave while we can. Realizing that I was free on account of the justice system dissolving before us, I jumped over and ran to my ex-wife. She sat in the witness chair once more, her gaze distant and her expression sorrowful. Do you think Thomas will forgive me? I put the pieces together. You met him because you were looking for him. She nodded, eyes slightly misty. It was the most I'd ever personally seen her tear up. That's the thing. The legends do say how the brown shirts helped build the shield. They're energy beings, really, and quite benevolent. They gave themselves to imbue the shield with permanence. What do you mean, I asked, helping her stand. They gave their lives, she said quietly, barely audible over the growing commotion. That's why I had my men searching for them. We had to do whatever it took. Great. If the brown shirts were willing, but if they weren't. I stopped halfway to Vass in the sword. You were going to kill them. And they still planned to, she said, choking on her words. They were going to take Thomas and... I put all that in motion. I was behind that. I was going to kill him if necessary. Until I met him. She turned her pained brown eyes to me. I was so angry when Laura died. I was... I was brutal and violent and filled with rage. You heard me. Heard my thoughts back then. You know what I did. I looked over at the friends urging us forward. Come on, let's get out of here. You don't think less of me, she asked. Truly vulnerable for the third time I'd ever seen in my life. The first had been at our daughter's birth. The second had been at her funeral. I actually laughed. I don't care what you did. You and I could become queen and king of evil and I don't give a shit. My place is by your side. She gripped my arm. You're the best man I've ever met. Nah, I tease as we ran forward. I'm not smart or rich. Loyalty's the only thing I got going for me. Ethan, Sword of Noah, Vasiliev, the Sword, Christina, and I pushed through the confused crowd as a group. We weren't dressed as convicts thanks to Ethan's fine clothes. And even our lawyers lost us in the milling riot. We slipped between those vast wooden doors and across the chaotic cathedral-like space beyond, finally reaching freedom proper. A monstrous ocean of people waited outside. A stormy sea, worse than the one in the courtroom. Some people recognized us as we pushed through, but there was no directing the chaos. Once surrounded, we realized what was happening. The people were partying. Music had erupted in multiple locations, and beers and drugs were being passed around. I saw important people from the courthouse among them, drinking and smoking with the poor. What's happening vast demanded of one suited socialite. The Richie looked at him with surprise. It's the end of the world, kid. Christina leapt forward, furious. We have to fight, not get drunk and high. A poorly dressed homeless man nearby laughed. For what? For the world, she exclaimed. To save everyone. Why? A poor woman asked. What's the point? I jumped into the argument. To live? To have families? I'm divorced, the old man shot back. Like everyone is. The poor woman nodded. Single woman here. I don't know anybody whose family lasts anymore. Raising kids in poverty is pointless. They'll just suffer, the Richie laughed. And even if they had money, my life is pointless too. I hate every minute of it. Let it end, I say. It's like being released from prison. 
Watching that same mentality throughout the whole crowd, we all stood in abject horror. Christina gripped my arm tighter, her cheeks screwing up as actual tears ran down her face at such a monstrous and apathetic betrayal. The government's fallen apart. The military gave up. The people themselves are celebrating oncoming death. Has the human race gone insane? I held her close for a moment, shaking my head. Until I'd found Higgins and trailed my way back to the woman I'd always loved, I'd been in that exact same mindset. I hated the system itself, which had become far too large for any individual life to matter, and I wanted it all to fall apart. I would have been drinking and smoking with everyone else here. They weren't insane. They were just existentially exhausted. Our mission here had been doomed from the start. Humanity had fragmented in this latest era into a million little shards of ideology that all hated each other, and they'd been kept together only by an exploitive system that ensured none of those shards could ever matter or change things. They hadn't even been able to agree that the world was warming while the sky was turning whiter. The concept of humanity banding together was now as impossible and alien as the things I'd seen in Tescoy. But I couldn't tell her that. I just sighed. We had no choice but to keep moving. We thought we were home free until six men in military uniforms found us right beyond the other side of the ocean of people. The six men approached, stopped short, and saluted. Sir, what are your orders? We looked among ourselves, confused. Ma'am, the lead soldier said. Excuse my frank talk. You seem to be the only one around here that gives a shit, and knows what's going down besides. Far as we're concerned, you're in charge now. Surprised back from the depths of despair, Christina stepped forward slightly. How many men do we have who feel the same? He looked at his comrades. Um, us six, and a couple more scattered around the city. It wasn't much. That made twelve of us. We began moving deeper into the city, passing by rivers of mad partygoers. That'll do, she said, recharged by finding out that not all of humanity had lost hope. Get on the radio. Tell someone to get the nuclear warning systems. We're going to treat the initial white hole eruption like a potential nuclear attack. And we've got systems to prepare for that, right? Have them turn on the sirens once they detect anomalous EM bursts in the shield's upper band. That'll be our only warning it's about to fail. Maybe half an hour. He nodded, then barked some orders into his radio. He looked up a moment later. Parker's at one right now. He said he'll... The rising whine of sirens cut through the noise of parties all around, echoing from high buildings and filling my heart with dread. Not already, Christina told our new allies. Tell him to wait until... I'm detecting EM bursts now, the radio responded. Have been for three or four minutes. No, Christina breathed, looking up at the sky. No. Our gazes followed hers to the sky. The gold was still there, but the white was harsh, bright, and searing. The sirens kicked into full gear, their eerie call drifting loudly over the city. The partiers filling the street slowed stopped and looked up. We all understood at the same time. There was no time to prepare. There were no plans. No last-minute heroics. And no options. The end of the world was now. Voss was the first to ask the obvious question. What do we do? His answer came in the form of a great tide of terrified screaming. The party was over. Men, women, and children swarmed in various directions in mindless terror desperately seeking bolt holes in which to hide from some great unknown but approaching destruction. Heart pounding, I waited and looked to Christina, as did the rest of our makeshift squad. She grabbed the radio and raised it close. What's your name, soldier? Parker, sir, he replied, nervous. Ryan Parker. Ryan? 
I'm going to need you to focus and make every single second of this next hour count. You hear me? His voice quavered. Yes. Now, you've got everything you need at your station. There are countrywide systems in place to prepare against a nuclear attack. Hardened communications, bunkers, warning systems, and the like. Now all you have to do is turn them on, okay? And pester anyone you can reach to do the same. Yell at them, lie to them, promise them beers. It doesn't matter. Wake them up and get them active. Okay, he replied, reassured by her calm tone. Sir, one more thing. Do you have a location for those EM bursts? Um, yes, one second. We waited, breathless. About two or three miles northeast of the city. Christina looked up at the sky, judging. All right, send out that location data through all the emergency channels. Tell people to get as far away from there as they can. She looked around at the streaming panicked crowds and asked them to do it in an orderly fashion, if that'll make a difference. Even as we looked around in fear, a giant television screen on the side of one of the nearby buildings went black, preempted by the emergency channels, and then basic green text appeared recounting what she'd just said. All right, let's go. Ethan moved closer. Where to? I do have a safe house, but it's on the other side of the city. What about using the vortex machine to portal back out? Sort of no asked. Let's get the hell out of here. She shook her head. We never make it there in time. We have to find somewhere and hole up. It may blast out exotic radiation initially, so we have to avoid exposure. Adrenaline pushed at my senses. I grabbed her hand and started moving, trusting the others to follow. I know this city. Follow me. Navigating the rushing torrents of panicked people was the hardest part. Huge groups swarmed this way and that, desperately running after any suspected inkling of safety. Many of them saw our six accompanying soldiers and figured we had a good destination, so they started following us. I felt on the edge of panic myself. It was hard not to broach that line, and I danced with the idea of losing it and freaking out every step of the way. My mind kept wanting to guess at the potential explosion scenarios, but I had to keep telling myself that I had no idea what it would actually look like. I had to lead everyone to the safest spot I knew. As the tall buildings of the downtown area began receding on the skyline, I knew we were nearing our destination. My panic lessened even as the sirens echoed louder in the open air. The thick foundations of several very large but cancelled skyscraper projects had survived many earthquakes without damage. And we turned the last corner as Christina's radio crackled the life with a familiar voice. What's going on in there? A friendly but worried male voice asked. Heath? Christina shouted, using one arm to speak into the radio and the other to push screaming people out of the way. How are you reaching us? Noah too set up a connection, and I've been working on getting into the system over there ever since. Heath responded. Everything just went crazy. The first world's about to be destroyed, she replied loudly, and several of our accompanying soldiers looked surprised. She looked to them for a moment. We might survive the initial blast, but after that the white hole won't just go away. We'll try to live through the eruption and then make a run for the base and portal out of here. What about all these people? A soldier shouted, looking around in horror. Mothers and fathers ran past carrying their children. Cars honked loudly at one another, but none moved. Larger men pushed their way through the crowd in a state of panic. A seemingly abandoned young girl stood on the corner and cried. But I had no way of knowing if her parents were around. Over all of it, a blanket of eerie, unhearing descended. The sirens seemed to deepen their mortified whine as the last grains of sand in our hourglass drained away. Christina took all of this in, like I did, and forced herself to look away. There's nothing we can do. Can your black-eyed army help? Vasiliev yelled. 
His face temporarily conflicted with the instinctual resentment and anger he held towards her for all of her long-ago tortures. She shook her head and then spoke at the top of her lungs just to be heard. The possessed halves were always difficult to control, but the sword hasn't been with them for quite some time. They're running their own agenda now. Slowing our dogged advance through the crowds, I caught sight of the heavy metal doors to the bunker-like building foundations. People were spilling out as quickly as they were entering. The building was full to the brim. No good, I motioned to my squad. Christina put her radio right up to her mouth. Heath, do you have maps of the area we're in? Already on it, he responded. You're half a block away from... His voice cut off as crackling interference rose to a crescendo. Shit, Christina mouths, before pointing at the nearest building, a dilapidated housing project. We ran. I broke the door in with a charging shoulder impact, and we forced our way inside, even as I felt an incredibly strange sensation surging through me like an ocean tide on its way out. It was as if space itself was stretching. And it was. I misjudged the step and almost fell. The walls pulled away from us in a surreal semi-optical illusion, and the ground shook with a vast kick. Wordlessly, using military hand gestures, we directed each other, and our swarm of terrified following civilians, to pull up mattresses and anything else they could find to form a makeshift fort near the building's core wall. I crouched down behind crushed in with dozens of other people. Christina held my hand with a fierce white-knuckle grip, and we squeezed down as hard as we could. The makeshift wall of debris wasn't much, but I'd seen documentaries, and even just a single layer could protect from the initial lethal radiation. The tide inside me shifted the other way suddenly, and I felt thrown against the wall by the sheer change in the elasticity of space itself. She and I looked each other in the eyes for a moment. Was that it? Were we going to... The ceiling and walls above suddenly grew alive with eddies of fire, and I instinctively pulled the top edge of the mattress down hard to make a seal with the wall. A swift punch to the lungs followed, in the form of torrential winds blasting through our huddled mass. The roar was preceded only by the sound of countless windows shattering, and then a screeching note blanked out my hearing. I could see huddled families screaming. By what light I was seeing our shadowed enclosure, I had no clear idea. I couldn't tell if the earth was shaking, or whether it was the insane winds against the building. But it didn't matter. There was nothing to do but pray. Pray, and hold on to the mattress above me. The heat in my slightly exposed hand became unbearable, and I thought I could feel my skin melting. But to let go would have been unthinkable. With my free arm, I only gripped Christina's hand harder. She seemed to instinctively understand what was happening to me and she tried to take whatever part of my pain she could. A slow ebb in the maelstrom crept up on us, until a moment of true calm and silence fell. Christina yelled something, but I could only hear that screeching ring in my ears. Fortunately, the huddled soldiers and families were too deep in shock to get up. The devastation was not over. It was merely changing direction. The hurricane winds picked back up, surging back the other way to fill in the air pressure void left behind by the initial eruption. The air was still searing, but my exposed hand had gone quietly numb. I didn't dare do anything but hold on until the ghastly winds finally slowed for a second time. This time, people knew the explosion was over, and they began peeking out. Talking didn't work at all, as everyone had been temporarily deafened, and we began using hand signals to direct those at our edges to slowly exit. Our makeshift fort had been burnt and melted into permanence. It didn't fall over even after people let go. I slowly unclenched my hand, at first hopeful that it was working at all, 
and then looked at it and felt a dark pit grow in my stomach. Eyes full of concern, Christina tore some of the nice shirt Ethan had given her and wrapped up my hand. I could only stare in shock. It reminded me of hot dogs my father had once left on the grill too long at a 4th of July cookout when I had been young. Come on, she mouthed, and I followed after her, mentally numb. The room we'd taken shelter in had been charred blacker than my hand. The housing project had gone from ten stories to one. The first floor, where we'd hidden, was the only one left. Jumbled devastation ran in every direction. Piles of shattered lumber, broken bricks, and burning refuge. A few unlucky people lay in the streets, seared into the pavement and still smoking. Nearby, the doors to the heavy buildings we'd initially tried to seek refuge in had been sealed shut by piles of debris. Christina directed some of our soldiers to hurry over and unbury them. I just stared around at the destruction, before coming nearly full circle and looking up. A second sun burned in the sky, brighter than the first. It hovered in place, exuding eerie waves of distortion, sending the sky running away from it in every direction. All this I saw in a split second, because I dared not look directly for fear of being blinded. What I did see woke me from my state of shock as my soldier training kicked in. Shapes moved on the horizon and among distant rubble. Many of the well-designed skyscrapers at the core of the city had survived mostly intact, if charred and ugly beyond recognition, but the sight just beyond them chilled my soul right where the explosion had previously burned it. A gigantic ruby cube, perhaps two miles across on each side, floated up into sight. I grabbed Christina, and she turned to me. Tescoy, I tried to pronounce without being able to hear myself. She narrowed her eyes, and I spun her around and pointed. If we were going to make a run for the military base back in the center of the city, it was going to be a hell of a mission. The White Hole's eruption and the Inner Shield's failure had just dumped a thousand years of agitated threats right into a city filled with devastated and defenseless people. We'd have to cross all of that if we wanted to save ourselves. And the thought of saving any more than that, an insurmountable task in the face of the nightmare that had descended upon the city. What do we do? I asked her as she turned to me with pained eyes. She just shook her head. I gripped her arm tighter with my working hand. What do we do? For the first time in all the years that I'd known her, she truly had no answer. To be concluded. More of Matt's work can be found at mattdemersky.com. More of Raphael's work can be found at Short Scary Stories Narrations on YouTube.